Hey, welcome to what's yet another daily occurrence of night school. And I'm sick. I'm sick, so I probably can't really do any voices, and I shouldn't be talking. I haven't gone to the doctor, but I know what he'd say about doing podcasts when I'm sick. Uh, I'm sick. This is just an excuse to tell everyone I'm sick. I love when people do that, when they just want everybody to know they're sick. I'm sick. Hey, everybody, I got another cold. I got another cold. I only tell you things when I'm really euphorically, manically happy, or or when I'm really fucking sad or mad. That's what a lot of people do, though. A lot of people want to express themselves when they are on a high or a low. And, you know, it's silly, you know, to bring up social media all the time, but it's interesting, and you can really see that on there, where people want to post things when they're either on this high, they're in this manic state. I worked for a guy who would go in these into these manic states, and he'd be like, I don't see why everyone's not just as happy as I am right now. Uh, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, and you're beautiful. Meanwhile, if you say, like, the slightest wrong thing, he's going to be like, oh, my God, what the hell is wrong with you? No, not, not quite that bad, but that's sort of the sensation of it. People who are in manic states are terrifying because they're all elated and happy Everything that's in their, like, cone of vision during that moment, they're just so enthusiastic and happy, and there's this, their ego is rooted in it. Uh, but if you do anything to cross that, they just turn. And so anytime someone's in, like, an overly euphoric or manic state, there's a reason why people should stay away from that. Um, but the same goes for when people are having, like, excessive lows and, and that kind of thing, especially when they... It, when the reverse becomes true and you're like, well, things aren't really that bad and, you know, tomorrow's a whole new day, you know, whatever cliche. Tomorrow's a whole new day cliche. And they're like, no, fuck you. Everything's going to be bad forever. Uh, and that's how you feel when you're sick. Like right now, I just have this like mild like throat thing. I feel just completely quote, neutralized. There's the word of the week. There's the word of this era of my life just being neutralized and you can kind of appreciate being sick in that way it's almost like a big finger just like is pushing your head just down a little it's just like sink down just a little just sink down a little slow down a little when you have this sort of mild sickness whatever it is I have Uh, but you know you do have that feeling like oh it's going to be this way forever oh this is it you know oh this is it you know I uh I'm just going to feel sick forever now. And sometimes that's true. Like some people do get serious diseases or whatever. But, uh, you know, for the most part, even just having a cold, I I end up with that thought where I'm like, oh, this is my life now. You know, I was going to work out today and now I can't work out. I guess I'll never work out again. Uh, I'll do a podcast, but I'll never work out again. Uh, But, yeah, no, we have this desire to express things when we're either up or down. And it's funny to me when people want to tell everyone they're sick like I'm doing right now. I'm sick. I'm sick. Um, uh, but I'm thinking more about that neutrality idea and I hope when I talk about neutrality that it isn't mistaken for indifference and, uh, you know, I do, I, I try to see myself as some kind of peacemaker in a weird way, which ends up in that same territory as like the dilemma of trying to help people. Like, you know, it's very like, who am I to think that I can help someone, but then who am I to think that I shouldn't help someone too, or, or that I can't contribute to some, to something in some way. And I think that the same is true for periods of conflict where, 
you know, I, I do see myself as someone who could potentially be a peacemaker. Not that I am a peacemaker, but I see myself as someone who I desire to hold things together uh, in some way. Uh, whatever, whatever I can grab a hold of that I think is of value, I'd like to hold that together. And I see this attitude, uh, there was like a girl I used to work with who posted something about how you should like, uh, you know, if you have any like friends who voted Republican to not to end that friendship. And that's totally like within someone's right. You know, I'm not criticizing someone's desire to remove people from their life who they think are acting, uh, acting toward an end that could potentially hurt people or hurt the person who is who is thinking this. Who is saying like I cut those people out of your life, out of your life? It's my life. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm sick of saying life. I'm sick of saying life. I'm gonna say my life. This is my life. Do you mean lives? No, it's my life. It's my uh, Xbox Live. Never. I've tried to play Xbox once, and the controller was just. It was like. It's like somebody like put shit on like a uh, a manta ray and told you to hold it. It's like someone like put like buttons on a manta ray and is like, "This is a, an intuitive controller." Um, but uh, <laughs> Xbox Live, Xbox Life. You're playing Xbox Live. Well, I'm playing Xbox Xbox Life with my Live. Um, but yeah, this idea like cut these people out of your life, cut them out, cut them out. You know, show them what, show them what's what, show them that you don't even want to hear what they have to say anymore. And I understand that completely. And there's people that I've had to cut them out of my life, not because of what they think so much, but because of how they convey it and the kind of energy they bring. And it goes back to that thing, you know, with your behavior where you really have to look at the things you do, the things you have control over that you do. And how often you regret doing them, for example, like working out. Like even when I go on just a brutal run or, you know, I push myself really hard, I have never regretted a workout. I have never regretted it. You know, I've regretted having poor form and, and getting injured, that kind of thing. Of course, you're going to, you know, think, ah, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone running on concrete that day because I, you know, it just put too much tension on my knee and now I have to take a break. You know, it's just that kind of thing. Uh, but I've never regretted an actual workout, like the actual act of working out and pushing myself and the same goes for you know most creative projects you know naturally doing a podcast there's a lot of regret <laughs> a lot of second guessing anytime you're using just your words uh, but there are other behaviors too where you look at them and you're like oh yeah you know th there's a high probability that I'm going to regret doing that when I do it even if it's only just the time itself even if it's only like the the amount of time I spent, you know, even if the actual act didn't really like hurt anything in my life, maybe just spending the time doing it, you know, wasn't good. And I regret that. Uh, but you really have to look at things and like, what do I regret? Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, yeah, I think the same goes for uh, people. Like if there's people in your life and you just find that interacting with them or even just being around them brings you down in some way. And we're in this age where we, encounter people in multiple dimensions you know you encounter people in person and there are people who when you're around them you feel great and you have a great time but maybe you don't like the way they maybe you don't like their text messages I really like you but I don't like your text messages maybe you don't like their online footprint maybe you don't like their podcast 
you know, we're exposed to these different dimensions of people's minds uh, and, uh, you know, and where they intersect with us. You know, sometimes it's off-putting, and I, I totally own up my own place in all that. Uh, I feel like I would be doing something horribly wrong if I didn't, you know, bother people in some way just by being me. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's that thing with people in your life, too, where it's like if, if they just make you feel terrible every time you're around them or if you regret being around them more often than not, regret talking to them, well, that's the sign. That's the only sign you need, really, to cut them out of your life, preferably gradually, preferably in a way that doesn't provoke drama or anything else, especially if they're the kind of people who love that stuff and it's such a cliche like i don't like drama blah 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 and that's always the person who embraces it and creates it uh and i'm not even really going into that subject again but i just see this idea of like discourage my point was is i've seen this idea that we should like discourage neutrality in politics in our in our social beliefs and I think that's another thing you have to kind of do war, uh, war with internally. Kind of like me being sick and how there's a war going on internally right now between the bugs, whatever bug I got. There's some bugs fighting inside my body. Um, it's always going to be... No, it's not going to be this way. I'm going to get better. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you see this with, uh, you know, social and political issues and... There's this idea that, you know, you should just, you can't be neutral. You can't sit on the fence. It was the fence sitters that allowed the Nazis to happen. It was the fence sitters that allowed the Nazis to take over. And there's some truth to that. Indifference does uh, allow insidious entities to gain power and, you know, do things. Insidious entities will do insidious things. Uh, that'll happen. Uh, but I think people distort that. I think people distort perceived indifference sometimes, and that's worse than simply being indifferent. And, you know, I think you... It, you know, am, there's a difference, too, between ambivalence and indifferent, and I am not an indifferent person, as if that needs to be said. I generally don't come from a place of indifference. Sometimes I do, like on... Where do you want to go eat? Where do you want to go eat tonight? You know, it's like in a relationship, like that classic fight dilemma thing that just like, how many divorces have happened just because people can't decide what to go eat? How many bad stand-up comedians have made that joke that I just made? I don't know. Uh, I don't know because they didn't succeed. Uh, but uh, it's it's that kind of idea where it's like I'm indifferent towards some things. Like when someone asks me a real to make a really trivial decision that doesn't matter to me, I feel totally indifferent and I don't want to answer the question. Uh, but when it comes to bigger things going on, things I observe, things I read, things I take in, I feel more ambivalence than anything. And I think on this show, I try to promote ambivalence over indifference. And I don't know that I've really put words to it before like that. I don't know that I've ever actually said that. I don't, and I think that's important to say that uh, anytime I talk about neutrality, the neutrality I'm talking about is a product of ambivalence more than it is indifference. But I'm also not going to... 
I'm not going to shoot down indifference either and say that like if you're indifferent, it just means you let bad things happen. How you're just as bad as them because that's a really sick pathological way of thinking. That's a really um, it, like when people say that it comes from a place of frustration that those people don't agree with them. That's usually where that comes from. When someone is criticizing someone for being indifferent, it's not even that that person is actually facilitating something horrible. Uh, it's that that person who's upset about indifference is... They, they are upset that that person isn't supporting their cause. It's like when people say, if, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, what they're saying is if you're not angry, you're not paying attention to the things that I want you to pay attention to, and I'm actually assuming that you're not paying attention because you don't agree to me, because if you're paying attention, you'd have to agree with me because I'm right. I'm right. And, and you're allowing the Nazis to take over by not agreeing with me. That's what people are saying when they say that. Um, and uh, so I, I come from more of a place of ambivalence where I try to understand where people come come from you know I try to understand where they are coming from and I don't say that as some sort like to you know I'm not saying that to be like oh look at how virtuous I am I try to listen to everybody but I do because I'm genuinely interested I try not to listen to everybody because I want to even like inform my own views because I've realized so many of my own views do come from this intuitive place and no matter what information I encounter, there is some sort of gut feeling that I, I just, I feel the need to go with. And when I go with it, I usually feel better. Uh, it usually, when I, when I kind of follow that, whatever that sensation is, and it's not just a gut feeling, it's not like there's no intellectual component that's like doing equations with with uh, ideas, you know, it's not like that's not happening, but there is some sort of intuitive sense that, you know, I don't know, that leads me there. Uh, but I try to pay attention to what different people, different sides of issues are saying, because I'm just genuinely interested in how they're framing their arguments and what logic they're following. And as much as I, I can be critical of the, you know, the the modern atheist science religion that's been created, uh, you know, we don't believe in, uh, we don't believe in, you know, these crazy, uh, you know, rapture and the apocalypse and Ragnarok and all these ancient, you know, religious ideas of the apocalypse. But have you heard about global warming? Have you heard about my sense of right and wrong? And how if you don't believe in my sense of right, how you're going to cause the global warming apocalypse? But God forbid we listen to all these scriptures and all this talk about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, apocalyptic cosmic events, because that's all bullshit. But here's my version of an apocalyptic event that's going to happen to you in your lifetime because of you, because you drive a car, and you didn't watch enough Neil deGrasse Tyson you didn't watch his TV show enough. So you're causing global warming. Okay, see, I got, I just, I can't resist. I can't resist. Um, and I, I, I can't resist just losing trains of thought. Losing trains, derailing trains of thought. Uh, but no, I am genuinely interested in what people have to say. Because I just, I want to know what their logic is. I want to know where they are coming from. And I, I want to be able to explain that to people, too. You know, I, I want to... 
there's a term steel manning that I really like. You hear about straw manning, like that's a straw man, which is basically to assume that someone's argument is the dumbest possible variation. It's the dumbest possible variant of that argument. It's coming from the worst possible place. They are the worst possible person. They're dumb. Their argument is dumb. Their argument, you know, it's 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 done to just like dissect someone, but it's it's not an actual. You're not actually even playing the game. You're like, I'm going to create my own game where you're this. You know, I'm going to draw you as a stick figure because that means I can just snap you in half. And you know, straw man, stick figure, it's all kind of the same idea. But steel manning is to take someone's argument and imagine that they are coming from the best possible place, you know, the most reasonable possible place, that their interest in that is genuine, that they came there from a genuine place that they think is they think it's right and they may be dogmatic about it, but you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. And that in turn, it's not just like, I think people are afraid to do that because they think, well, if I do that, that means that I'm going to give that person something. That means that I'm going to give that person some kind of strength, that they're going to win. If I imagine they're coming from the best possible place they could be coming from, that means they're going to win, and the Nazis are going to win, and all that. You know, That's kind of where people are coming from when they talk that way, uh, when they straw man opposed to steel man, and why they're afraid to steel man uh, their opponent. But what they don't realize is that when you steel man your apartment, you, uh, your apartment, huh, a, a, when you encase your apartment in steel, when all of your appliances in your apartment are made out of steel, no, but uh, when you steel man your opponent, you're actually strengthening yourself, you know, uh, and it's it's going to make you have to tighten your argument up. It's going to make you, you you're going to have to truly understand the logic behind what you're saying. And I think the biggest threat that people feel subconsciously and why they don't want to assume, why they don't want to give the benefit of the doubt to their opponent, why they don't want to imagine that person's coming from the best possible place they could be coming from is because they're afraid they'll agree with them. It's not that they even are afraid that that person's going to win or overpower them or they're going to give too much credit to them and that person's going to somehow change the world. They're going to make the world really bad. It's actually that they are afraid that they're going to end up finding common ground or maybe even agreeing with them. And uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to change your other views. And that's where the ambivalence comes in. You might be like, wow, I understand why they feel that way based on where they came from, what they're surrounded by, what they've been exposed to or not exposed to. I understand in some way. I have some sort of empathy toward their perspective and it goes back to the cognitive dissonance thing that I is just my broken record uh, idea is just you know this they don't want to feel that cognitive dissonance they don't want to think okay that person who that I'm convinced is just the worst that person who you know gives me my identity because my identity is my opposition to them I now have to consider that their ideas have some value, that their perspective has some value, and how do I contend with that if I still think that my ideas have all this value, that my ideas are of equal or greater value? How can I possibly deal with that? And uh, you should. You're not going to go crazy. You're not going to lose your mind. You're not going to lose anything. 
you may actually come up with a much better idea and you are actually going to round your perspective out. And, you know, and even, it even applies to the worst of the worst. Even if you find out that someone, that someone's views are very twisted, they are coming from a very hateful, dark place, understanding how they got there is important to your own perspective, too. Because uh, that stuff isn't arbitrary. People don't become neo-Nazis uh, just arbitrarily. You know, they don't, it's not just, you know, one little thing. They just made a decision. Maybe, you know, I'm not going to say it's not, there's not someone out there who fits that. But the fact that that is, is a, a movement, uh, you know, is not, it does not come from just some arbitrary place of, well, uh, who can I hate? Who can I hate today? You know, it's, that's not where it comes from. And the closer you get to understanding it, no matter how disgusted you feel, no matter how painful it is, uh, the more strength your own place is going to have, and the more likely you are to, uh, the more li- I don't know, the more likely you are to, the more likely your perspective is going to have a meaningful impact outside of your little circle. The more that you understand what people are, what is leading people where they are going, uh, you know, the more likely you are to strengthen your own self and the ideas that you support. Uh, and so that way you should give people the benefit of the doubt when at all possible. And, you know, it isn't always possible. Uh, again, we deal with this idea of there are absolutes, but there's a gray area in between them. Uh, and some things can fall into those absolutes. Sometimes there is good and evil. Uh, and sometimes there is something in between. And sometimes something falls closer to one end or the other, but it's a little bit gray. It's a little bit white. Sometimes, you know, uh, sometimes you don't even know. Sometimes you think something is the, the darkest dark. You think, like, the color black is the blackest of the black. Uh, and then uh, you compare it to something else that's black, and you're like, oh, that's actually kind of gray. It's not as, you know, it's, there's a whole spectrum of stuff, and the same goes for ideas. Uh, and someone who grows up in an environment that's really bad, and their idea of, you know, the darkest of the dark, is just, it's midnight black. They were abused, poverty, horrible circumstances, life is just shit on them at every rung of the ladder, and it's a downward ladder, you know. Uh, you know, it's almost like the glass half empty or half full. It's like, well, is the ladder going down or is it going up? And there's some people where they just feel like they're going down that ladder rung by rung and every, every rung is just covered in shit. There's people who feel that way. And, you know, their idea of what sucks in life is midnight black. And it truly is. And to them, like seeing something gray is actually like bright. It's like, whoa, that's, that's really good. Uh, a guy paid attention to me. Uh, all my experiences with men are fucking horrible and abusive, and they've been that way since I left the womb. And actually, while I was in the womb, because, you know, my parents, my father was a certain way, and I could, you know, I could hear it even when I was in the womb. You know, you know what I mean? It's like there's some people where they just don't have a chance. And so, like, they meet someone who, who looks gray to them, but they're like, holy shit, that's an angel. Uh, and the same is true on the opposite end where some people, you know, are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They live a really great life 
and uh, their idea of like goodness, you know, they, oh, we spend our spring break in uh, the Swiss Alps and, you know, we go skiing with other rich people and all this. And, you know, so their life is very bright and something like just slightly gray. They encounter something slightly gray and they're like, oh my God, that's fucking awful. Oh my God. I didn't get the iPhone I wanted. I just heard a story about a kid in India, a rich kid in India. It'd be funny if he was a poor kid, actually, based on this story. But uh, he was a rich kid in India, obviously, and uh, his parents bought him a Mercedes, I believe it was, but he wanted a Jaguar, so he pushed the Mercedes into the river. It reminds me of the story I told on a recent Every Night's a School Night about the guy in the 80s metal band in Seattle who killed his mom for buying him the wrong guitar, or all the kids who, like, get angry because their dad bought them a white iPhone and not the pink one with studs on it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's people like that, though. Their life is so bright that, you know, just something that's slightly gray is like a catastrophe to them. So, they're, you know, you see where, like, our idea of, like, right and wrong and good and bad, you know, it just a lot of it really depends on where we're coming from and where and what we experience. And I think about it a lot because I see people who will, like, it's very popular among Generation X to, you know, as much as I've talked shit about my own generation and millennials, I don't think I've talked shit, but I've just been critical. Uh, one thing I've really noticed about Gen X, and, and I'm not going to take credit for this idea because I heard someone talk about it at length and I really, it resonated with me. But one thing I've noticed about Gen X is they tend to blame their parents for everything. And of course, you know, if you're Gen X listening and you're like, I love my parents, you're not talking, of course I'm not talking about you. Of course I'm not talking about you. Um, but Generation X, like, there's a tendency to really blame their parents for everything. And you think about, like, the grunge era and all that. And it's like they never really got over that angst. And I've known people who are, I'd say, between the ages right now of, like, 38 and, like, close to 50. And I've noticed, I don't, I don't really know what the, the timeline is for Gen X, but I've really noticed this, this common theme among people in Gen X who have had otherwise good lives who need to, like, blame their otherwise well-meaning parents for everything. And it reminds me uh, in uh, Carl Jung, you know, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, he talks about that. And uh, he talks about how, like, you can just keep taking that back further and further. You know, and I've been fortunate to have a certain perspective because, like, my mom never knew her biological father. He lived in the same town for a while she lived on a you know a poor farm with her mom and stepdad and and a bunch of brothers and sisters but uh her her parents had you know her parents had been together like my mom's biological dad and her mom had had gotten together but they never got married it wasn't an affair or anything it was just something that didn't pan out and uh, my, my mom and I have talked a lot about her biological father, who she never knew. She knew his mother, which is interesting. Like, she knew his mother, as like, and she was never told that it was her grandma, but she would visit her as a little girl and stuff. So there was this, there was, you know, there was something there, you know. There, there, was, there was some, like, she was aware enough of, of like, who her father was and all that. Uh, but, you know, you think about that. Like, she didn't know her father, but n- at no point in my childhood and at no point in my life, I was saying this to her the other day, I was like, I don't remember you ever, not once, complaining or, like, considering yourself abandoned by your father or saying anything negative, even though you had 
you know, all the reason in the world to like harp on that. I never knew my father, this and that, you know. And then I see people who complain about their otherwise well-meaning fathers who were in their lives and they were imperfect as we all are. And I'm not going to say that that doesn't matter, but it makes me think of the person who whose life has been very bright. And then there's one little gray thing and they, there's like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'm sick. Did you hear I'm sick today? You know, like, did you hear my parents bought me a, a Mercedes and not a Jaguar? A Jaguar. When I was a little kid, I thought it was Jaguar. A Jaguar. A wire jag. A war jag. Um, but you see that, and I don't blame people for doing that, because it's just they haven't taken a step back. And I'm sure I do that in all kinds of ways. You know, that's a thing that I, I try to remind myself of. It's like, in what ways am I doing that? In what ways am I seeing something that seems midnight black to me, but to someone else is gray? And I don't know that I really succeed, because it's, it's really hard to get that kind of perspective, especially if you derive some kind of like meaning from it. Uh, if complaining about your parents is some sort of meaning. But Carl Jung, to go back to that in, in Modern Man in Search of a Soul, he talks about you know, how some people are just predisposed to that. Some people are just predisposed to like blaming their parents while other people... And, and, and the reason for that is because they see their parents as larger-than-life figures. He says, you know, those people who blame their parents for everything, they see their parents as these looming figures over them their entire lives. And no matter how old they get, uh, they still see their, imparent, their parents as these imposing figures with this role, not as people. And he was saying other people, though, manage to just see their parents as people for what they are, good or bad. And as he says, you know, the problem with seeing them as these looming figures is that you can just keep going back generation upon generation. And like you can say, oh, you know, uh, my parents were imperfect and they did this that fucked me up. And then you look at your parents and you go, what did their parents do? And so you look at your grandparents and you're like, oh, well, you know, my, my grandparent did this and and they fucked up my parents that bad. So it's like this chain, this cycle. And you can just keep going further and further back and you could basically go to the beginning of time in, in of your own bloodline you know not really i mean maybe maybe you have a genealogist in the family who's traced the, the whole family tree all the way back i don't know but you can keep going back further and further and blaming people uh, and you can do that on a societal level as well you can keep going further and further back and be like look at what the romans did look at what these people did Look at what the Founding Fathers did. Look at what these people did. And that doesn't mean you should ignore that or ignore the impact that has on today. Uh, and the same goes for, you know, your own family tree, your own biology. You shouldn't ignore, like, the negatives or whatever, but you should also be realistic about them. And you shouldn't allow them to become these looming shapes. You should look at them for what they are, which is people, a chain of experience and people. And uh, I, I look at my own family as an example where... You know, my mom's mom, who I never met, was really fucked up, I guess. Like, you know, I think she had a good heart, but, you know, she, you know, slapped around one of the daughters. She had a couple of the kids in the large family that she was abusive toward, while, like, my mom, for example, she treated very well. And that'll, of course, create a lot of guilt in a child when you're the kid who doesn't get slapped or you're the kid who's, like, the golden child. Uh, uh, but, uh, 
you know, but then you look at her and I, and I was saying to my mom, I was like, you know, like maybe your dad like didn't stick around because like it was honestly too difficult to handle your mom. And we can have those kinds of real conversations because she's told me extensively about like her mom, her mom and, and the issues with her. Uh, she was bipolar. And I was like, maybe like he honestly just couldn't deal with it. And especially in that era, you know, the 1940s, who knows? I I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not justifying the fact that he really did abandon his daughter, even though my mom's never used that word. Uh, he did and nothing, and, and he lived a successful life and he started another family and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I do have some deep, like, you know, I I don't want to say resentment, but it's like, his family probably didn't know, like his kids don't, he has kids today somewhere that are relatives of mine that don't know I exist, that don't know my, that may not know my mom even exists. And for that guy to just live through his life without addressing that, you know, that is a major flaw in that guy's, that's a major chink in that guy's armor, you know? Uh, But at the same time, I had to consider like, from what I've heard about my grandmother, my mom's mom, maybe she made it impossible you know based on like how especially the stories i've heard when she was younger how uh you know just volatile she was like maybe he just didn't know how to deal with that and but then you look at her you look at my mom's mom and from what i've heard she was her mother had like a ton of boyfriends and husbands and a couple of them sexually abused my grandmother, my mom's mom. So you look at her and she's bipolar. She has, you know, these episodes of violence and, you know, hostility. But she was sexually abused by men that her mother brought into the house. So th- see what I mean where Carl Jung says you can keep going back further and further, generation upon generation. You're going to find something there and you're going to find something bad. And so you have to take ownership of yourself and you have to say all this stuff led me here and it created this situation and these people in my life, but you can't just keep going back. And it's weird to me because I, Generation X to me is this sort of lost, it's almost like they don't know whether to, you know, they're, they're not quite as, uh, you know, they think they're really progressive and they kind of try to toe the line with these new like quote unquote like woke millennials and Gen Z kids, but they're not really like that. They've, they've kind of started to become their parents cause they still have a little bit of that like boomer sense of entitlement to them. And I hate to even criticize boomers cause that's all so many people do. Uh, well, that's what, that's, that's what, the, what I'm complaining about <laughs> is Gen X blaming their boomer parents for all kinds of things. But it is one of those things where Gen X seems like this lost group where they don't really know where they belong. And I think that's lent itself toward blaming the older people in their lives. Uh, but I, I'm not beefing with them. You know, I'm not blaming Gen X. I'm not, I'm not playing the same game by being like, well, Gen X is blaming the boomers. Well, I'm blaming Gen X. I'm blaming Gen X. Gen X. My daughter's name, Gen X. Hey, Gen X, get over here. Uh, my dad used to say things like, get over here. It's fucked up. Um, no, uh, it's just one of those things where, yeah, you can keep tracing. You can keep the blame game never truly ends. And eventually you realize it's a circle and you're going to be blamed next. You know, it just it, it just repeats. Uh, everyone can blame somebody else. And eventually it comes back to you once you start doing it. 
But I am very opposed to this idea of just writing people out of your life for... I don't know. I, I, it's a mixed one because on one hand, I understand why people say don't want like a Trump supporter in their life if they if that's opposite of their values, and I, I completely understand that. And it's it's within everybody's personal right to pick and choose who is in their life, what they are exposed to, uh, especially if they feel like it's pulling them back. But I hope that they. I think the. I think where I'm coming from on that is that I see a lot of people misidentifying people. Uh, you know, there's people who call Joe Rogan alt-right. There's people who call people like that alt-right. And I'm just like, this is bad. This is really bad. Like, you know, and I'm not even out to defend Joe Rogan. Like, I actually, I admire the world Joe Rogan has created. I admire someone who is completely self-made like that. Like, he's created his his own environment entirely and he's done a lot of people a lot of good in doing so not just his friends who he's given careers to but he's given platforms to a lot of people who have uh, brought a lot of good to people's lives in a number of different ways Uh, but that said it's like I'm not a I'm not a huge like Joe Rogan fan of him himself like as a comedian for example like you know, I was talking about being able to appreciate a comedian's work, but not finding it funny. I think Joe Rogan's a great example. Like, I recognize the work he puts into his comedy, but I actually don't find him very funny. And I, I don't even find him that interesting. It's a weird thing where I like what he's created, and I admire him in that regard. I admire, like, what he's done and, and the world that he has, he has created for himself. Because it's not just a little private internal world, which some people create. Some people create this, you know, I, I did that episode recently about the the self-created world where you never want to like just wall yourself off with your own creations and you live in this weird, uh, like whatever happened to baby Jane type world where you just like stay in the mansion with your weird shit or like you never want to live in that insular of a world. But there is something really desirable about creating your own environment and your world and I think where my respect for someone like Joe Rogan comes from is that he's created his own world, but it's open and it's interactive with the world around him. So it's not just this closed off little fantasy land where he can pretend to be whatever he wants and everything else outside is interfering and you got to keep it out, whatever. Um, He's actually created his own world within the world that interacts with the world. And that's why I respect him the most. Uh, but people will call him alt-right because he has a variety of guests on. And that's, I think, the concern I have is when people get labeled unfairly and unjustly. And it's happening all the time. And it's not just people getting called alt-right. It's also people getting called Antifa who aren't that. It's people getting called um, you know, communists or socialists and that sort of thing where I'm just like, you don't want to do that. You want to steel man everybody. You want to assume everybody's coming from the best possible place. And one way to, I mean, the first thing, if you, if you want to try to do that, here would be my advice to anybody who wants to start steel manning their opponent. And, it, and at that point, you're not even in a world of opponents. You're in a world of people. You want to start seeing you know, people in the best possible terms. And if they disappoint you or if they let you down once you do that, that's another thing. But 
you know, when you start steel manning people, you stop putting little labels on them because those little labels only exist so that you don't have to think about what they are saying. Those things only exist so you don't have to think about what that person is saying and so that you can just shut them out without having to consider anything, so that you don't have to let their view come into your world because you might actually become ambivalent about it. Instead of being lopsided, you might have a balanced perspective and you might still believe in your original philosophy and ideas, but you don't want to have to deal with the idea that those ideas have value and meaning too. So you call somebody a commie, you call someone a Nazi, you call someone this or that, and these terms are losing their meaning entirely. And if you are coming up with a label for somebody that has already lost its meaning, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, you know, what is, what is the end goal of that? It's, it's, it's putting someone in an out group solely for the sake of putting them in an out group because you are so scared, you are so insecure, you are so resentful that you can't possibly imagine that person is actually coming from a place of reason, logic, and value because there's not just one logic. There's not just mathematics. There's not just one process for coming to a conclusion. You know, there's not just one way of understanding the world. And when you realize that, you understand how similar different perspectives actually are. It's kind of like all this, you know, religious warfare, you know, and you look at the Middle East and it's like, we're not talking about Christians fighting Muslims in the Middle East. We're talking about Muslim factions fighting other Muslim factions. I, I highly recommend, you know, just researching, uh, you know, the roots of some of these conflicts. And you're like, the Shiites against the so-and-so, you know, and it's like, I'm not an expert in that at all. I don't know shit, honestly. I really don't. But I, I did a little, like, basic historical research, and it's just amazing where it's like, these are factions of the same belief system splitting hairs over very little. We're not just talking about people from completely different religions fighting each other. We're talking about people within the same groups, and you see that kind of factionalism, you know? I'm a mafia researcher. One of my enduring passions of my adult life is researching the history, you know, uh, of both the Sicilian and the U.S. Mafia, and I know I bring it up a lot, but um, I've learned a lot from it. And you see the same thing play out where these aren't people... F Most of the conflict is internal. Most of the conflict is even from guys from the same Sicilian hometown, relatives of each other. You know, there's that saying, familiarity bre uh, breeds contempt, and that's so true. It's often the people that are closest to us that we feel the most estranged from and in conflict with. And it's, it's interesting to see that play out in the mafia where, because uh, in the history of the mafia, a lot of the crime families, like the New York Five families, each one was basically started largely by guys from a certain town in Sicily. So the guys from Corleone started this group, the guys from uh, uh, Castellamare del Golfo started this group. And it's like, okay, well, you know, of course, you know, they flock together. They're from this village, they were mafia members from this village, so they came to the U.S. and they stayed together. But then you see that like a lot of the violence, a lot of the mafia conflicts and quote-unquote warfare was guys from the same village killing their own people. You see a lot of that because 
there, I, I don't know. It's, it's, and, and that's kind of what we're seeing in politics, too, where there's a saying that's pretty popular right now where it's like, the left will eat itself. And there's a lot of truth to that, where you see that people continue to split hairs. Like, I went to the Evergreen State College where all that controversy happened a couple of years ago um, with the professor who was, you know, uh, you know, driven out of the school. And around that time, it was interesting because I, I would go on runs at the campus. It's beautiful. And uh, I remember on the main campus, somebody had written in huge chalk letters, Black Lives Matter. And then I went back a week later and someone had added in trans Black Lives Matter. But it was done in kind of this provocative way where it was almost like, you're not being specific enough. And then I went back like the next week and someone had erased the trans Black Lives Matter. And it was like, even in that sentiment, there was this conflict. And it was represented so perfectly by this chalk writing on the on the main campus square. You know, it was like, it was essentially like, oh, you're not being specific enough. You're not you're not supporting this specific group enough, so fuck you. And you see that a lot, and the right wing does it as well, of course. Uh, although the success of the right wing in recent years, a lot of that has to do because they've kind of bridged some gaps. They've, you know, whereas like there was a certain point in time where you had to be a fundamentalist Christian to be, you know, part of the, uh, you know, the ruling faction of the Republican Party. You had to be like far right. And that's still uh, a big group in in right wing politics, the evangelicals. But there was a point in time, if you were around for the Bush era, where that was the ticket. And that wasn't the case the last few years. That was not the case. You had a lot of weird people, some some people who came from these kind of counterculture backgrounds, who, you know, were very secular, you know, and they were able to you know, come together with the evangelicals. They were not eating each other. And it's not to say that that doesn't still play out, but I think a large amount of the success of right-wing politics in recent years is because they actually were not devouring each other, at least not at the same rate that the left was and is. And so it's very easy to start devouring your own because for the same reasons I'm talking about where you label somebody, you give somebody a label and you say, that person is this. That person's a commie. That person's a Nazi. That person's all right. Um, in the same way that people do that, they do it within their own groups. And if you look at the warfare in the Middle East, like I said, it's not just, we're not seeing Christians fighting Muslims. We're seeing Muslims fighting Muslims over relatively minor details, at least to an outsider. To them, it's everything. You know, I'm not minimizing whatever they think their cause is. I mean, obviously, it's of great importance to them. Uh, but it's weird to see that as an outsider and be like, wow, you guys are so similar and you're eating each other. And uh, you have to be very careful, though, with labeling people because it's like the second someone disagrees with you or if you even think there's a possibility that they could disagree with you and they just haven't said it yet, you'll still label them. And it's like, wow, or cut them out of your life. And, and you know, you're cutting something out that you could potentially learn from or that could potentially give you a stronger argument. Because I think that's the, the big part, is that you're cutting something out that could potentially inform your life and inform your perspective. Uh, and it goes back to the cognitive dissonance, the broken record of cognitive dissonance, where 
you know, maybe new shapes will take hold if you're willing to be ambivalent about about ideas that you're told are in conflict with, with, with each other. Because how many things that you think are, there are so many things out there that you think are, what's the word, um, mutually exclusive. You think that these ideas are mutually exclusive. And how much of that is just the fact that you are told that? How much of that is just the fact that you are told these ideas can't coexist or, or these ideas are in fundamental opposition to each other? Uh, it's, it goes back to the black and white idea where it's like, well, yeah, if you think that that black and white is all that exists, that's one thing. And black and white does exist, but to completely ignore the gray area in between is to do yourself a disservice because the gray area isn't wholly indifferent. The gray area is actually more ambivalent than it is anything. That's what produces the color gray, the shade of gray. And someone would fight me over that. They'd be like, gray's not a color. Gray's a shade, you know, and it's like, oh boy, oh boy, you know, but uh, you have to understand that, that the gray area is not a product of indifference as much as it is ambivalence. It's the shades of black and white mixing, uh, and, you know, don't mistake that for indifference, and don't mistake a, a peacemaker a well-intentioned peacemaker for a sympathizer of your opponent. Just because they've made an attempt to understand your opponent doesn't mean they sympathize, and just because they empathize doesn't mean they sympathize. It's important to understand the difference between those terms. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take my hand and walk this land with me.